Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Please join me in the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. This meeting is to the prisoners still suffering. Uh, It's a panel of the Sexaholics Anonymous Correctional Facilities Committee. And my name is William, and I'm a sexaholic, and I serve as the Correctional Facilities Coordinator. Uh, we have um, three other members of the fellowship who are going to be speaking about their connection to carrying the message uh, into prisons. And um, I would like to uh, invite you, if you're unaware of uh, the materials that the committee makes available, we have a series of uh, materials that you can um, ask for from the central office in Nashville uh, that include uh, three stories of members who have been in prison and a number of other uh, forms that are used in our work, and we invite you to request those forms if if you're interested in this type of work. So um, uh, the next person to share will be Tom, and he'll be talking about his experience with the meeting in a prison. Hi, I'm Tom, and I am a recovering sexaholic. Um, it's about a year ago, um, I was invited to go to a prison in Pennsylvania. I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, it's the uh, state prison in Albion, PA. And uh, they started the meeting on uh, November 9th of 1999. And we, the outsiders started going in on um, February 1st, uh, 2000. And uh, I've been going every Tuesday night uh, for that meeting. And it's been a very good experience. Uh, and... My original concept was, well, I'm going in there to help them. And it didn't take me long to realize the very first meeting, um, cause someone said, oh, here's comes the guest from the outside. And one of the guys says, guest. Uh, so, um, reminded that we're not, I wasn't a guest. I am there as a brother, uh, fellow sexaholic, uh, suffering, uh, just happened to be a different location. Uh, they just can't get out and go to other meetings. So we started the meeting there. And, uh, and they actually started themselves, and then we were invited. Uh, so I go there every Tuesday night. Um, it's one of my regular meetings. Um, towards the end of that, almost towards the end of that first year, they started talking about having a marathon. Um, and so uh, we asked the institution, and they uh, were open to it, and if we planned it well. so um, And that was a... Uh, coordination both from the outside. We have about three or four volunteers from the outside who come in on a pretty regular basis. And, um, and there's about 15, uh, members who come to the regular meeting. And, uh, so we together, uh, we planned, um, our first marathon and it was a month, a year and a month to the day that they started. So on November, December 9th of, uh, two, of 2000, we had an all day marathon. And I was talking to William and I guess that's the, First marathon that's been held in prison. And, uh, I assumed that they had had AA marathons there, but that was the very, very, very first marathon of any type, of any 12-step program. Uh, 
So we felt very fortunate. Um, today's date is uh, January of uh, 2001, and just this past Tuesday, uh, the uh, prison uh, fellowship voted uh, to have four marathons a year because the institution was open. They says, do you want to have them once a year, twice a year, or four times a year? <laughs> it just bowled us all over, and we said, we'll go for it four times a year. Um, and in fact, they, even at the last meeting, they just, they took more ownership and leadership of uh, running the next marathon. Also in this past year, I'm not exactly sure, I want to say in the fall sometime, they wanted to start a uh, second meeting. And so they have one on Tuesday night and then another one on um, Saturday morning. That was the only open day that they had uh, in the unit. And we happened to meet in the uh, there's the uh, sexual offenders unit of the prison. And the prison is about, uh, the population it runs about 1950 uh, on a pretty regular basis. I notice that when I go in, um, so that's the, the population of the, uh, of the prison, and they have one whole unit for sexual offenders. Um, but I feel very privileged to go in there. In fact, I had asked them at this last meeting, I said, uh, what would you like me to say to you uh, when I come here? And uh, they said, first of all, say thank you to the SACC, uh, to the committee, uh, for um, uh, one, providing literature, and... Uh, and for all the people in SA who really support uh, them in prison, um, it became very much aware to me, uh, and you hear the same, you know, and I don't take it for granted anymore, but for the grace of God, there am I. Uh, each one of us in this fellowship could be in prison. In fact, one of our members, um, just recently, an active member in our fellowship, uh, was sent to prison for two years over, I won't go there, but um, the prison, our penal system is not very open to, um, and it had nothing to do with sexual offenders, and all that. but anyways, um, and so we're in our fellowship in Erie, we're kind of uh, supportive of, uh, of working in the prison, uh, and we're very fortunate to be able to go there every week. We haven't got a permission yet for the Saturday meeting to go in, and, but we know that's going to come, it just takes uh, time for all the uh, in the prison to uh, do the um, all that uh, uh, bureaucracy, but we support them too. We work with the uh, you know we try to work with the uh, officials there. In fact, I wanted to give uh, William a card for one of the uh, counselors in the sexual offenders program. She gave me her card to give to William and the uh, to work with uh, other prisons who are willing to run marathons. Uh, they've gone through it. They know how to do. She is willing. She's willing to um, actually uh, help uh, uh, prisons to uh, how, what they went through and, and to do it. And we didn't even ask her. You know, she offered to do that. And um, so... The marathon there? It was very similar to every, uh, you know, marathon that we have out, outside. Um, you know, because we don't have any marathons in Erie yet, uh, but we do go to the ones in Buffalo and Pittsburgh and, um, and sometimes in Rochester. Uh, and they're all, we're kind of centrally located with all them. But the marathon is we start at uh, 8 o'clock uh, in the morning. We get down to 4.30. We work within their their time schedule. Um, and our marathon, we kind of, this was our first, and we didn't know if we were ever going to have another one, so we just kind of gave them a little different types of meetings. We had uh, someone give a long lead, sharing their story. Uh, we gave someone, um, uh, you know, so there were some speaker meetings, a lot of sharing, uh, you know, and discussions after, you know, on topics, more on topics. Uh, so we gave a variety of type of, uh, of, of meetings that you could have. Um, we had a lot of new members because, you know, they could put that up and they could sign up for that. So it brought in a lot of new members. That was one of the ways we were able to bring new members in, uh, into the uh, fellowship. But they have now taken over the leadership, uh, and says, okay, you've shown us how to do it. And, uh, and now we're willing and ready to, you know, do the next one. 
uh, in the end of March. Uh, that was our scheduled time. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, so I'm finished. Thanks. My name's Gary, and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Gary. I volunteered to write a letter to one prisoner whose story I already knew because I, I just was attracted to what the guy said in the letter. And uh, I never dreamed that my letter would mean anything to him. And he wrote back, he said, you, you don't understand what a letter means to me. And uh, he's serving a life sentence. So I, I volunteered to write some other letters. And as the letters went out, they slowly I'd get some responses. And I, I really wasn't prepared for either the timing of the responses or what they said in their letters. Because, uh, you know, I'm here because I'm a sexaholic. And I'm here because I'm not too tightly wrapped. And, and life is it's just difficult for me. And on one of the most difficult days of my life, I got three letters from prisoners. And, uh, you know, I'm not a very emotional guy, but I, I started to cry just reading the letters because, uh, they appreciated what I had done for them. And all I did was write a letter. And they, they talked about recovery. And, uh, you know, I was very grateful. I was grateful that they wrote to me. I was grateful for what they said. And it made me re realize that I was grateful to be sober. You know, through no, um, I didn't make myself sober. You know, God gave me the a, a gift of sobriety that day. And uh, I just... One of the other things that has happened is that when a prisoner is close enough, uh, we can go visit him. So I've taken guys with me to go see see people, and one of them was, was in prison for about eight or nine months. And uh, because of the seriousness of his situation, the legal proceedings were just dragging on and on. And when when I met with him, um, he said, "You know, Gary, no nobody's ever come to visit me." And he had a wife, he had a kid, he had a he had two parents, all within a short driving distance. And I I just, I couldn't, I just can't comprehend that, to be alone, to be abandoned. In, in reality, this is not just a psychological thing that he was wrestling with. He, he was physically abandoned. And uh, God allowed us to go see him. And so we visited him as, as, as frequently as we could, as we were able to. And, uh, you know, even the waiting time was, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours. Uh, the guys from the fellowship that went together could, could have a meeting before we go in to see him. And, and when we left, it, it's just, what do you say? And, uh, to see, to see sexaholics visiting other sexaholics in prison. It's just, uh, it's a moving experience. And it just, it makes me realize how, uh, how important this fellowship is. Because I, I can't be sober alone. And I can't stay sober unless I pass something on to someone. And this is just one small way to do that. And the letter writing is, has been a tremendous, uh, opportunity to stay sober. To pass on, uh, sobriety to someone else. So I'll pass. My name is Scott. I'm a sexaholic from Portland, Oregon. And uh, in our uh, our area, we have a an ongoing meeting at the uh, Oregon State Hospital. It's been ongoing for a long time, and uh, actually in two different wards. Uh, but we started in March of 1987 uh, and had a what was originally a Wednesday night meeting later switched to Tuesday meeting. That uh, uh, original outreach, which was very early in our local fellowship, uh, was a result of a fella uh, who's no longer around uh, named Luke who had made the contacts originally through AA and got us into a ward. And we uh, have had that meeting, as I say, going on now for uh, a little over 13 years. 
but it has switched uh, from an initial ward, which was called the Social Skills Ward by the State Hospital, uh, and it uh, was a ward for uh, people who basically had uh, developmental disabilities or, you know, lacking in social skills. That's basically what it what it meant, and it was. Uh, it showed up in our meeting initially because a lot of these guys, for instance, couldn't read the uh, uh, the readings. You know, if I was listening to them read the readings, I had to follow along in our book to understand where they were in some cases. Uh, it was interesting to me because we still had people volunteering all the time to read. You know, they wanted to take the chance to do it, even though it was, again, to an outsider, almost incomprehensible. But they got better. The other thing uh, was that it did, uh, uh, we had hoped in going down to get this meeting going that the uh, uh, meeting would become their meeting rather than our meeting. So we weren't bringing in the meeting, we were just attending a meeting on the ward. And eventually that did happen. I know I had serious doubts uh, after the first uh, three months, six months. I didn't know if ever uh, it would get picked up on that ward to that degree, but it did. Uh, it definitely did. Uh, along the way, in our early experience, uh, we found that the support uh, for the staff from the staff uh, varied a little bit, especially from the professional staff. We have always found that uh, the people who work the second shift when we come in in the evening for these meetings are invariably grateful that we come, uh, extremely supportive, uh, actually very understanding of the clients. Along the way, we've, uh, on three or four uh, or five occasions, we have come down during the day to meet with uh, some of the professional treatment people. This is a hospital, not a prison, and so there is, a, you know, unit directors. Each unit is maybe 35 uh, residents or clients, uh, and there will be a, a psychologist and other professionals on the staff, and uh, ironically, uh, to me, it has always seemed like those folks have been less supportive of uh, our meeting. They have ranged from being supportive to kind of being quietly but openly skeptical. Uh, so we have not enjoyed as much support from them as I would like, and that has uh, occasionally posed problems in that uh, anyone who comes to our meeting uh, has to be basically okayed by his treatment team, again, because this is a hospital, and at least in theory that it's treatment and treatment supervisor must okay uh, a treatment plan that allows a resident to come to the meeting. They can't just really walk in. And the problem with the distance between us and the staff is that uh, as these fellows uh, uh, are released or transferred to other units or whatever, we always seem to have a constantly diminishing base of people in the meeting. Um, and one of the ways we have worked to uh, uh, to try and uh, uh, change that. We've never had a marathon meeting. I was very, very interested to hear that uh, in the Pennsylvania uh, prison. Very interested. What we have done is uh, each year at Christmas, we have a Christmas meeting, which is something we didn't plan. It just kind of developed. But essentially, we bring in a speaker rather than having a regular meeting. We try and get the word out to the staff as much as possible, so they will encourage people to attend. And we... Uh, bring in a speaker, we have a somewhat abbreviated meeting, and then the other inducement, or bribe, if you will, is we bring in a big cake, and they provide ice cream, and we have the cake, and everybody in the ward has some. So we get a little bit of visibility that way, and we uh, uh, and we typically have more people at that meeting. This past year, we worked extremely hard to do that because we were down just to two regular guys at our meeting, and uh, we had very good turnout from this ward and from other wards. Uh, we had seven of us who came down for the meeting, including our speaker. And uh, we had 23 guys from about three or four different wards. Now, that was one meeting. That was a speaker's meeting. And some of them were encouraged to come to that meeting by their supervisory staff. You know, we've dropped back a little. We're hoping that we're going to level out and have some of those guys on a regular basis. Part of the problem we face uh, is uh, that right now in Oregon, for reasons that are political and that I don't understand, there's kind of a change going on at the hospital where they're uh, basically discontinuing temporarily sex offender treatment. So, And they're kind of mainstreaming their wards, and uh, everybody is a transition ward, whatever that means. 
And so we've got a population that's a little bit scattered at the moment and a de-emphasis on treatment. And that seems to create an environment that's more like my very, very limited experience in talking with people who are uh, in prison. That is, uh, they get to be very, very, uh, uh, oh, clammed up about their, uh, about their addiction and their problems. In other words, if I'm not in treatment and, uh, we're not talking about this stuff, I don't want to talk about it. Um, I don't want to identify myself that way. You know, all of the usual things that would crop up in a, uh, uh I guess in more of an open prison population. Uh, let me see. What other things could I tell you? Uh, I think that um, other things that I've noticed over the years, uh, our program is a little difficult for the professional staff and the state to embrace for several reasons, one of them being uh, uh, we're a spiritual program, and there's that separation of church and state and professionalism and all this. So it's a hard program for us to, or for them to push. AA is a little more accepted that way just because it's been around so long and everybody talks about it even at, you know, professional state get-togethers. People don't talk about our program. The other thing that I do think scares uh, institutions a lot about our program is the way we phrase it, that we're powerless over lust and that our lives should become unmanageable. Uh, and for us, that's a very powerful and liberating and life-changing statement, but for an institution that's been uh, given the task of not releasing people until they can control themselves and their behavior, that's kind of a scary approach to it, you know, to say we're powerless. I personally don't consider that to be the obstacle that I think many of the treatment people do, because a lot of the techniques that they use, simple techniques, uh, are not dissimilar from what we use. an example being, and this is going back a few years, but there was a technique that they used that they locally called coverts, and it had to do with thinking. And when, you know, if I'm, to personalize it, if I'm in a situation that's a little over my head and there are triggers or whatever, uh, you know, the way the covert works is the first thing I do is say, stop, this is a dangerous situation. You know, if I continue in this situation, I might end up back in the hospital or prison or whatever. I need to get myself out of here. Now, uh, they talk that about that as a control technique, uh, and to me it is not dissimilar from uh, what I need to do in my own life day to day when I realize I'm in a lustful situation, you know, basically to stop being recognizing that I'm in a bad situation and that lust is a problem, and then uh, uh, admitting my powerlessness and turning away or getting out of there. So I, I bring that up as an example where I don't think that our program is so dissimilar from what... Uh, they are taught when treatment is in process, but it uh, uh, we're coming at it differently, and I do think that that is a, a problem for the professional community. Um, oh, and I guess the other thing I should tell you is we have had uh, uh, good support in the Portland Fellowship from a core group of people who share the duty of going to this meeting. It's about a three-and-a-half-hour commitment, uh, you know, figuring driving time and whatnot. It's about 50 miles away. Uh, and we right now have uh, six or seven of us who are primary supporters of the meeting, and we kind of map it out, if you will, three, four months in advance, and people just kind of indicate what nights they can be responsible for, even though, in fact, we will usually go in with a couple of us, sometimes three. Anyway, that's the way we're handling it in Portland. And we do have uh, uh, a couple members, one member of the fellowship in particular who is in prison at the moment, a long-standing member of the fellowship, and I uh, was in there visiting him with Harry this week, and uh, uh, it's unfortunate, but the reality in that prison environment is that he is very afraid uh, for his anonymity and his well-being, and, you know, trying to get a meeting going at this time uh, through him in the prison would be, you know, very, very difficult. That is not true across the board in Oregon because we do have one prison in particular which has a very high population of sex offenders and it's a lower security sort of prison. And uh, that prison, uh, uh, it's not a danger to individual men to be known as uh, uh, as sex offenders. But at the other several prisons, it generally is a major obstacle. Uh, thank you.
Good morning. I'm Alan with Recovering Sexaholic. Hi, Alan. And uh, I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about myself and uh, what brought me to this uh, uh, to this position. Uh, before that, uh, I have been incarcerated, spent a year and a half in uh, uh, Sandstone Prison in Minnesota, so I, I know what it's like for a uh, for a sex offense. Uh, I'm going to start this with telling you about the hopelessness that brought me here, and then I'll go back to the beginning. Uh, October of '97 was not a good time or year. I could not work. I couldn't concentrate on anything but lust. It's been all I've ever thought of. My family, friends, business, everything was second to my obsessions. On October 30th, I was arrested for criminal sexual assault, and that's when my good life started. It might seem a little silly to you, but uh, it it really uh, it really was. It was a good change because it forced me to come clean with my family and get a part of this monkey off my back. Now I'm going to go back to the beginning. I have two wonderful parents, can't complain about my upbringing, great wife that I don't deserve, and two children. Grew up on the west side of Chicago, have a sister two years older than myself. My mother was a part-time librarian, Cub Scout, dead mother. Uh, My dad was in business for himself, and we had a very good life. Why do I have this sickness? Uh, I wish I knew. I've been working for the last four years trying to figure that out, but a uh, little at a time. I know when it started, I was about 12, started masturbating, inappropriate touching of girls, and exhibitionism. I also did most of the things a normal teenage person would do. I was in Boy Scouts, Explorers. Uh, wasn't very good at sports, but I played in most of them and I enjoyed them. Wasn't real popular or didn't make a lot of friends, but the few that I did make have lasted over the years and have really stayed by me. Uh, my wife to be lived uh, in the neighborhood and went with her all through high school. We got married and uh, she never knew of my, uh, my addiction to sex. Uh, was uh, pretty discreet about it. The age of 16 had been arrested for indecent exposure, but was released and never prosecuted. I told the police and my parents that I was just standing in front of the window changing clothes in my room and didn't realize that the shade was up. It was a lame excuse, but it worked. Uh, this put a scare into me, but uh, it didn't last very long, and I was right back to acting out. At the age of 20, I got married, and uh, 38 years later, we're still married. So <laughs> despite all that I've done, it's hard for me to imagine that you would forgive me, and it must have been God's will. Uh, my exhibition and finally of young girls continued as before, never slowed down. We had two children, a boy and then a girl. When my daughter was young, I started finally her also. This increased into an incest relationship that lasted until she was 13 years of age. At that time, she said no more. She would tell her mother, and it stopped. I was at an all-time low then. I continued after this with more exhibitionism and then started with pornography of all types. At that time, there was no internet or almost no adult bookstores. Over the next 30 years, I was obsessed with these books, and then video came along, and it just added to it. What a what a great media. Uh, internet brought me into the realm of child pornography. I didn't even know that it existed until then. It changed me for the worse. I got more aggressive as the images I was seeing, all the young girls seemed to like like it and want sex. We had moved from a house into an apartment complex that was full of children. I continually got worse. All I could think of was acting out and would leave for work early so that I could go to the complex and act out. I continued the exhibition appropriate touching until I was arrested in 1997 for aggravated sexual assault. At that time, I knew if I didn't get help to stop this growing sickness, I would spend the rest of my life in prison. As it was, I was incarcerated for 18 months. Through the help and understanding of my wife, my parents, my therapist, and SA, I've stayed sober for the past three years. My children have not forgiven me, and probably never will. My daughter will not talk to me and will not let my wife see her grandchildren. My son and wife and his wife are kind of civil to us and let us see the children. Through the help of you in this program, I can now walk straight and feel better about myself. You know, now you know, know a little bit about me. Uh, Experience in prison, especially a prison that has no specific sex offender unit, uh, is an enlightening experience. Uh, I was pretty fortunate 
as I was in a federal penitentiary and not a, uh, a state facility. And uh, the nature of your offense doesn't get broadcasted in in federal penitentiary as much as it would uh, would in a in a state facility, and it's con- it is considerably safer. Uh, but the chance of getting any recovery in a prison that doesn't have a specific unit is is zero. Uh, the prison system is not interested in your recovery at all. And, uh, they, uh, the prison I was in, he had 970 inmates in a prison that was built for 220. Uh, rooms that were one-man rooms when the prison were open were now four to six-man rooms. So you can get the idea that it was, uh, slightly overcrowded. A dining room that was built for 200 people was feeding 900 people at the same time. So, it uh, it really didn't it didn't work very well, but uh, we existed there. Uh, I can't say that prison was bad. It, uh, it, it undoubtedly saved my life. I mean, I would probably, uh, uh, if I hadn't been arrested, ended up doing much worse than what I did, and been in prison for many many years, and probably a state prison where uh, the life expectancy of a uh, sex offender is, uh, especially in the older adult is not very long. So, uh, through, with, uh, through, through the grace of God, I ended up in a, in a really good, uh, in a really good spot. Uh, things, things to remember, uh, is that, uh, in a, in the prison system, uh, anything, anything you say can be used against you. So if you're talking to a therapist in a prison, uh, even one that has a sex offender section, if you tell them you've done something illegal and that's something that you weren't arrested for, you're going to be retried, reconvicted, and added on to your sentence. So recovery in prison, uh, the, the best chance you have for any recovery in prison is to have an SA meeting or a 12-step meeting of some type in the prison. That's that's your best chance. They're very, very difficult to start. So now the next best chance is to be able to write to somebody that's in SA and get information from them and be able to work with them and work the steps. Because you can do that on a fairly private basis in the prison. Uh, your mail is read, the incoming and outgoing mail. So uh, and what you write has to be generic, but it should be according to our, our bylaws and the way we work. Uh, so it is a really good thing. The prisoners that do get this mail really appreciate it and it really really does help them because in the overall facility in the government facility anyway of uh, 100 I think there's 190 federal penitentiaries there's only one that has a sex offenders unit and that's in North Carolina so that's out of the out of the whole system the state of Illinois between all the county and state prisons which I think are 47 there's only one prison with a uh, sex offenders unit so it's not, they're, they're not very widely spread. It is pretty hard to get to it. And uh, I'd like to thank William for the wonderful job that he's really doing in this committee and uh, thank all the people that are writing the prisoners. If anybody has any questions about prison experience or any problems, I'll be glad to answer them. Thank you very much. At this point in time, um I'd like to ask anyone in the room if they um, have something that they would like to either ask or comment about um, carrying the message to the sexaholic in prison. Um, if you do have a comment, I would like to invite you to come up to the microphone and speak directly into it, either a comment or a question. If there are no comments or questions, that's fine. We'll um, I'll make a, some concluding remarks and we'll close the the uh, meeting. Uh, I would like to thank all of the members of the panel for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And um, I know it's going to help our fellowship uh, fulfill its responsibility to carry the message to the sexaholic who still suffers in prison. Is there anyone in the... Yes, Steve? Does SACC uh, <clears throat> cover hospitals as well as institutions? 
Um, we'll answer uh, each comment or take each comment or question one at a time. Um, <clears throat> the Corrections Committee at this point in time is involved in both hospitals and in correctional facilities. And um, there are some um, situations where, that are called uh, civil commitment centers. In some states, they've taken away... Um, people's civil rights because they're uh, sex offenders' civil rights because they believe they're still a threat to society and they become um, residents of the state, but they aren't being released. They're in treatment until um, uh, uh, the experts and, and society decides that they can be released. And so at this stage, because we're in the early stages of our own growth as a fellowship, we we are concerned with all three of those um uh, places. First of all, I say thank you. I'm impressed, and I think it's awesome what is being done. What has been done since I first heard about these meetings about three conferences ago, and I was given a, an address. It came to my mail to write to one, and uh, I remember how skeptical I was about getting started with writing that letter, and now with what Gary said, I'm so impressed, you know, by what is happening when something is done that continues to reach out for those people that need it more than we do, in a sense, because they're alone, and they're lonely, and uh, also, it was, to me, one of the greatest things I've heard, the success in Pennsylvania, that is, uh, again, it's, it's something awesome. I, I went to Beijing this year, and I saw the Great Wall, and I said, this is something that only one in the whole world, and uh, it seems to me like this is compared to that, this approach and this success in Pennsylvania. But for all of you, I say thank you very much. Uh, my name is Daniel Sensolic. And uh, I just want to make a statement about uh, when writing to somebody when they're in a facility. Uh, I was in men's central jail for seven months. And uh, I discovered that... Uh, all the menial tasks, such as uh, mail delivery and uh, you know, mopping the floors, all those things were done by trustees who are just merely inmates who uh, who managed to keep their noses clean enough, you know, didn't get in fights and so forth. And they they uh, ended up getting a trustee status where they could uh, take on certain responsibilities within the facility. And uh, I remember that uh, I was appalled because somebody in my family sent me a letter with the with uh you know mentioning program and and mentioning a few things you know it was just a comforting letter from a family member nevertheless uh it comes into the jail system they read it then they give it to trustees the trustees look up your booking number and it has your offense written right there on it so they're in the general population they can tell all their buddies if they want to uh what offense you're in there for plus they all the letters are already open so they can pull them out and read them as well so I guess my statement is that I just I just uh, want to uh, reaffirm that we have to be very careful what we say to people uh, that are that are behind bars because uh, you know our our task is to uh, to help support them and certainly not to uh, bring any discomfort or any or any hardship on them. So we, we really have to be mindful of uh, of what we write and share with us, with uh, folks behind bars. But I can also tell you that when, when you receive something from somebody on the outside, it's just an incredible gift. I, I got a, uh, I was out on bail for a short while, for about five weeks before I had to go back in and, and do uh, seven months in the, in the county jail system. That's where I served my time, so I never actually went to prison. But uh, I was floored because 
my Monday night meeting got together and, and uh, passed the card around and the entire fellowship, like 45 names all signed on it and wrote their best wishes on it. And they sent that to me and, it, and they uh, managed to get that through to me. And, uh, you know, people told me I could make collect calls to them, which are also monitored, of course. But uh, it was just a real gift to get something, just one supporting piece of material from the outside. And I knew there was a program out there and I knew there was hope. And it really, really gave me a lot of hope for myself. So I just thank you guys for having this uh, committee. Hi, I'm Tom again uh, from Pennsylvania. Um, one of the guys, you know, when I asked him what uh, he wanted to share, and of course some of the guys who have been in prison could really say that, but especially since they've started SA, uh, in the beginning, uh, one of the very first issues that we really had to discuss as a group in the fellowship in the prison was trust. And, uh, anonymity. Uh, because, uh, they say, you know, like you're saying a lot of that stuff out there on the block, uh, just goes right across the board, you know. And so we really emphasize the trust and anonymity and what says, you know, what said here stays here. We went, we spent oh, probably a month or two on that very issue. And of course, they kept saying, how do we know that you're not, us outsiders aren't uh, part of the system? And, uh, that was a real big issue. And so what we did, Right from the beginning is we started, and of course we had that great fear too from the outside. We were worried about our anonymity that we could be here, uh, that great fear. Um, but what we started doing was, uh, uh, leading from our weakness and telling our story little by little. Um, and that, uh, you know, this, that works. Um, they could, could relate to that. And they began over a period of time, they began to open up and, uh, I was really, you know, really grateful for that. Um, today they're saying, uh, um, SA is saving them. You know, this is the, you know, you, I'm not used to hearing this, but, um, uh, I was aware, you know, a con man can con, they try to con themselves and they con everyone else, even in the system, you know, and that's part of the system that I could, I, I sensed that. And, um, we never went there. But uh, uh, I began to see that uh, the uh, the walls began to break down within each uh, each one of them. I remember some of the guys, you know, who never shared, you know, and he said, you know, his head, he'd, he'd sit there with his arms crossed, you know, and he never shared, you know. And then he was the very first one to volunteer to do his first step right there. You know, we started doing first steps, uh, you know, as a group. And um, you know, he says, well, someone's got to start. Oh, oh, big. So, um. I was, I told him, I says, man, afterwards, I says, you were the last person I ever expected to I'm really proud, you know. So gradually, they trust, we, we shared with our weakness. They started trusting. Um, and, uh, and they're saying that SA, if all the meetings, cause they have to go to all those, uh, you know, I don't even know some of the names of the, some of the sex, uh, uh, offending, uh, meetings they have to go to and counseling and all that. And, uh, and yet they say it's the SA program that really is uh, their salvation. Uh, so if there's any ways you can get there, get one started. Now they started it uh, inside, you know, an old AA member. Uh, and one of our members happens to go there for another program and they started it and uh, they actually uh, started it from the inside. Um, so if there's any way you can get one going, you know, after hearing that, um, in fact, I'm thinking now of starting one. There's none, none in our county system, you know, and uh, I'm a little more worried there about my anonymity. But after a while, you say, oh, what the heck, you know, you got to do it for them, you know, and especially when they say things like, you know, a letter, receiving letters and uh, and our visits, you know, to them really is their salvation. And I'm thinking if I was there. Man, I'd certainly want someone to care for me. Uh, that, that feeling of abandonment. The other thing that I'm really always aware of, because they say at night, nighttime is there. You know, I'm sure Alan can say this, and anyone who's been in prison, when those doors are locked, they're alone, and that's their hardest time with this addiction, because so much of our addiction is private and alone. So when those doors are locked from about nine o'clock at night till seven o'clock in the morning, uh, so that's when I pray the most, you know, for them inside the prison. 
So um, it's been good, and uh, I'm grateful that I'm able to go there. We go, we travel about um, 45 minutes every week, and and yet that's my best uh, best trip and best meeting of the week. Um, I know it keeps me sober. I mean, really sober. Uh, so thanks. This is William, uh, sexaholic. Uh, one thing I would like uh, the fellowship to be aware of in, is that there we receive, um, perhaps this year we receive 400 letters from inmates. It's uh, increased every year. And, um, potential for us to carry our message. Um, across the U.S. and really across the world, we've started, um, it's amazing to see God at work. Australia has started to come alive. Some members started going into prison. The chaplain got interested. Now a treatment person is interested. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be in a position in the fellowship to see God start to work. But it's always through people. It's always through a sober sexaholic or through a sexaholic who wants to be sober. And um, uh, well, I want you to know that there is um, there are about um, 17 meetings in prisons across the country. And um, those... Um, I don't know how many prisons there are across the country or jails, but um, it just shows what potential there is. And one of the things that I experienced is um, that most prison officials or chaplains um, have never met a sober sexaholic. Even if we send them our literature, it, there's, it's not like seeing... We're living bo books. We're living white books, if you like, or handbooks. And um, if you walk in as a sober sexaholic and talk about how you got sober and what a difference it's made in your life, anybody who's worked with someone who isn't sober and knows the cycle that we live um, figures you've got something to offer. And uh, so I want to um, encourage those of us who uh, are are serious about sobriety, looking for it, and staying sober, that this may be an avenue that God is um, asking any one of us to um, consider as part of our 12-step work, um, whether it's writing a letter or contacting officials in, in, a, in an institution. And it does take courage, in my experience, um, uh, and I'm reminded of what it says in the AA Big Book that uh, all men of faith have courage. They trust their God and allow Him to demonstrate through them what they what God can do. And um, what Tom was mentioning about, you know, um, having the courage to go and go into a meeting and and uh, the question of one's own anonymity and that sort of thing. Um, but I remember when I was acting out, I wasn't really concerned about my anonymity very much at all. I put great, uh, I was, I put myself at great risk. And that was the courage of the disease. And now what I'm seeking is the courage of God to do His will for people who didn't have the good fortune of finding, of being brought to SA as soon as I did. And, uh, I'd like to close our meeting with, uh, a reading of the first paragraph from Tradition 3, because this is really, for me, the foundation of our fellowship, uh, one of the foundation stones, and also particularly of our work uh, with the sexaholic in prison who still suffers. That tradition reads that the only requirement for SA membership is the desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. I'm reading out of the 12 and 12, uh, or the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says, uh, adapting it to SA, it says, this tradition is packed 
with meaning. For S.A. is really saying to every serious sexaholic, you are a member of, you are an S.A. member if you say so. You can declare yourself in. Nobody can keep you out. No matter who you are, no matter how low you've gone, no matter how grave your emotional complications, even your crimes, we still can't deny you, S.A. We don't want to keep you out. We aren't a bit afraid you'll harm us, never mind how twisted or violent you may be. We just want to be sure that you get the same great chance for sobriety that we've had. So you're an SA member the minute you declare yourself. So I think that's a great uh, word for us uh, each today as we seek to uh, surrender lust and stay sober ourselves and as we consider how we can be of service to God uh, in the days ahead. I want to thank again all the panel, all the panel members for participating in the uh, uh, panel this morning and also for each of you who've come to uh, share in this work by listening and giving your comments. And uh, So with that, um, that's all the time we have for sharing. Anything you have heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. This is an anonymous program, so please keep the name and uh, number of anyone you meet or learn about in SA or SNON to yourself. What we say here, let it stay here. After a moment of silent meditation, will you uh, stand and form a circle and join me in the closing serenity prayer? Alan, would you lead us in it? I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.